Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, Judges 2, starting in the first verse. Give everybody a second to find that. All right, let's pray, and then we will get started. Father God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for your word that we can read, and I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word, that something that we read tonight will be what we need to hear. God, as we read about these Israelites, that we can learn from their mistakes, dear Lord, that we can learn from our own mistakes. God, that we can realize that you are faithful to us, and God, you call us to be faithful to you. So, God, I pray that you help us to see that in your word, but also see the devastating consequences of when we are not obedient to you, dear Lord, when we turn from you and when we allow sin to run rampant in our life. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would grab our hearts and grab our ears and grab our attention, keep us free of distractions uh, tonight, keep the things of the world out of our mind, and I pray that you be with me as I preach and teach your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Now, at the very beginning of chapter 1, just a brief recap. At the very beginning of chapter 1, we see uh, the tribe of Judah, with the help of Simeon, that are continuing on in the promised land. They're already there. Uh, They've already received the land, but there are still a few inhabitants there that they are, as God had already told them, to drive out a little at a time. Uh, They would move in and begin to take over the land. Uh, Judah went in and did pretty good of of being obedient to the Lord with Simeon's help. Uh, But after that, the rest of chapter 1 was not all of the rest of the tribes of Israel, but a large portion of them, and they were all doing what the Lord told them not to do. Instead of going in and driving out the inhabitants of the land, instead of going in and destroying the inhabitants of the land, instead they went in and they allowed some of the inhabitants to stay. Uh, They enslaved the inhabitants to be their workforce. Uh, They ultimately ended up intermarrying with some of these inhabitants. All these things that God told them not to do, they did. And so they went in, and while they had took control of a lot of the promised land by God's power and God's strength, Uh, They were not going to take over the land fully as God wanted them to, as we will see, because they were not being obedient to what God had called them to. Now, most of you might remember, or some of you might remember, when we were in the book of Exodus, and they were at Mount Sinai, they being the Israelites and Moses, and God spoke to them, and He made a covenant with them, and He said, Look, if you will do what I tell you to do, I'm going to be with you. If you will follow my commands, if you will follow uh, what I'm calling you to do, then I'm going to be with you and I'll protect you and I'll take care of you and you can count on that. And the people said, we'll do it. And in chapter 19, verse 8, the people said, whatever you say, Lord. So they entered into that covenant with the Lord. They agreed to the Lord's terms, which why wouldn't they? The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt God had delivered them miraculously from the powers of Pharaoh and all of his forces and all of his chariots that were coming after them. God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery and was leading them to a land of freedom. They had seen God uh, work miraculously in wonderfully powerful ways. Here God in Exodus 19 was speaking to them from the mountain, giving them these commands, giving them instructions on how they could live and should live for their betterment 
to keep them close to him and away from sin. And they said, look, Lord, we're going to follow you. We're going to serve you. We're going we're to enter into this covenant that you've made with us, and we are going to be faithful to you. Well, that didn't last long, as you might remember as we went through Exodus. And it's still not lasting. Even as they have gone into the promised land, this is a whole new generation. If you remember, the generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years that was disobedient. And it was the next generation that got to go into the promised land. That's this generation. That's this group that Joshua had led in. And so they should have learned from the mistakes of the past, from their ancestors before them. However, they have not learned anything. And all that God has done for them, they have failed to recognize God and be obedient to Him. Now, we may look at these Israelites and say, boy, they're boneheaded. They should have learned. All they had to do was look a few years back. Well, let us not be too quick to judge because we may be very guilty of the same thing. There may be things that we have seen others do or things that we ourselves have done, and then we end up repeating those same mistakes and getting into trouble and then wondering why things are as bad as they are. Why can't things be better? Well, it may be because we are living in sin and not living in obedience to the Lord. That's what was going on with the Israelites, and there's a warning for us there that we need to heed, and we need to make sure that we are not guilty of the same thing that they are. So in chapter 2, uh, things are going to pick up. And when I say pick up, I mean pick up for the bad, not for the good. Uh, there will be a steady decline in the Israelites from this point forward to the end of the book. Uh, things just go down and down and down from, from pretty bad, which is where they are right now, uh, to eventually they're going to get really bad, as we will see. In Judges chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, let's look at the very beginning of that because this is a phrase that we have seen a lot in Scripture up to this point. If you've ever read through Scripture from Genesis up to Judges in, in order, you would have seen this phrase, the angel of the Lord, quite frequently. This is something that we see mention of a lot, and we even saw a little mention of in Exodus, but we didn't talk about too much. Now, when we see the term, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we really have to read and we need to see exactly what's taking place to discover and figure out who this angel of the Lord is. Now, there are several instances where the angel of the Lord is mentioned to us in Scripture. The first instance we see of the angel of the Lord in Scripture is in Genesis chapter uh, 16, verses 7 through 13. Now, if you want to turn there, we'll, we won't look at all of these uh, in detail, but we will look at just one or two maybe, just to kind of get an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about the angel of the Lord. Genesis chapter 16, if you want to turn, you can. That's the first book of the Bible. It'll be close to the front. Genesis chapter 16... Verse 7 is where we will start. A little background. There was a guy named Abram, and he had a wife named Sarah. They were old. God promised them they were going to have a child. Uh, they didn't really have a whole lot of faith. It doesn't appear in God. Uh, Sarah wanted to speed the process up, so she took her maid, her servant, Hagar, and said, All right, Abram, I want you to sleep with my maid, with my servant, and have a child for her. That way we'll have a child to fulfill the promise. Now, that was not what God wanted to take place. 
Anyway, Sarah concocted this plan. Uh, after the child was born, Sarah mistreated her maid, her servant, Hagar, and to the point to where it drove Hagar away from, uh, away from the group, away from them. Sarah wanted her gone. Uh, Hagar didn't want to be there anymore. And that's where we see, uh, uh, that's where, what leads us up to in verse 7, where we're about to read. Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, uh, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they too... uh, and they will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with all his brothers. So she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees, for she said in this place, Uh, have I actually seen the one who sees me? So here we see our first introduction to the angel of the Lord. Now what we see frequently in the Old Testament when we see the angel of the Lord is we are introduced to what is called the angel of the Lord, but then it almost always seems as though things shift as to where the person is actually talking to the Lord themselves. Uh, we see even Sarah here, or excuse me, Hagar here, recognize the angel of the Lord as the Lord. She says, here in this place, I have seen the Lord. Now this angel says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply you. Now that's not a type of promise that an angel can make, that's the type of promise that the Lord can make. Now we see similar things as we continue on in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham. We won't look at that example, but we see a similar example there. Uh, We see where it starts off with an angel of the Lord, but then the language that's used there, it's as if the Lord himself is speaking. We see a similar example uh, with uh, Moses uh, in Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter three. As Moses is before the burning bush, it says that an angel of the Lord is there with him. But then, as we read on, it is God Himself who is speaking to Moses. Now, there are other examples, but we won't look at those. I wish we had time to go through all of them. But, but, but we kind of see what's happening here through those examples. I'll give you those if you want to go back and read them for yourself. I would encourage you to do so. But what we see in these examples is the angel of the Lord, but then it's almost as if things shift from an angel to the Lord himself. So what are we to make of these instances of the angel of the Lord? Well, uh, there are a couple of ways that we can look at this and a couple of ways that people do look at this. One is that it actually is an angel whom the Lord is speaking through. Now, before we go any further, we need to kind of determine and define what an angel is. Now, the, the word for angel literally interpret, interpret, interpreted means messenger. Uh, so it may behoove us to think of the angel in the term of messenger, the messenger of the Lord. Now, I say it may be good for us to do that because 
Typically, when we think of angels, we think of, of creatures that are wearing white, that are robed with a halo and with wings. And while there may be such angelic creatures out there, uh, the word messenger may be a better interpretation of the word angel in these instances, at least some of these instances, to help us understand what's taking place. It is a messenger of the Lord. And the term messenger, the same phrase that's used for, for angel, could be applied to many in the church who are messengers of God, who go out uh, and do the work and spread the word and speak what God tells them to speak. Uh, and they don't necessarily have to be those who are dressed in white and those who have wings are those who have a halo. Now some would say that these instances of angels in the Old Testament was an actual a heavenly being that God spoke His voice through this, this being in some way, shape, or form. Another popular view is that these uh, instances where it mentions the angel of the Lord and then it appears the Lord himself is speaking is just that. That these instances that mention the messenger or angel of the Lord is actually the Lord appearing before these people that we see in the Old Testament. Now that's what's called uh, in the scholarly realm a theophany. That is, God appearing in some other form that's not His normal form. As we know, we can't see God. You may remember that from Exodus. Moses desired to look upon God, but he couldn't look upon God and live. He was only able to see His back as He passed by as Moses was in the cleft of the rock. Now, we know that we can't see God and who He is and all of His power and live. But it does appear in reading of the text in the Old Testament for sure, that God did appear in certain ways that people could see and that people could relate to and that people could acknowledge. Now, in the case of the Israelites in Exodus, it says that God appeared to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, God said initially that He would go with them in the pillar of cloud. Then later on in Exodus, you may remember, that it was the angel of the Lord who went with them in the cloud. Now, it could be a theophany, that is, God Himself appearing in some form and speaking to the people in some form that they could relate to. And that's reasonable, I believe, for us to consider that that's one opinion. Another opinion is that these messengers, that these beings that are speaking or who are leading or who are fighting for the Israelites uh, may also in some instances be a Christophany. That is, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. Before He came in the flesh, Jesus has always been existent. And so perhaps some of these instances that we see in Scripture are Jesus Christ Himself. Perhaps Jesus is the messenger who is with the Israelites in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, who is there to, to protect them, to, uh, to deliver them, to get them freed from their enemy. Perhaps uh, that's, a, that's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ Himself. We see other instances, uh, for example, in Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace, and the rest of those who threw them in looked in the furnace, and yet there were four men in the furnace, not just three. And they said, look, there's one that looks like uh, the Son of God in there, or the Son of Man. I don't remember exactly how it's phrased in Daniel. But there was someone that, had, that took the shape and the form of a human being that was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now that could have been a theophany. It could have been God in some human form there with them. Or it could have been a Christophany. It could have been uh, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate there in some way, shape, or form with them. Or it simply could have been an angel, what we might typically think of as an angel. When we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, though, in Scripture, we need to take a little time and read and kind of see the context of what's taking place. Sometimes in the context of this, 
uh, we may conclude that it is the Lord who is speaking. Now, why it's chosen to be uh, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, to describe the Lord, I really am not too sure of that. But there are many of these instances where it's hard to deny that it is God himself that is speaking to these different people, whether it be Hagar or whether it be Abraham or whether it be Moses or whether it be a host of other instances that we see in the Old Testament. There are occasions where God does appear to people in a form and in a way that they can relate to him and they know and acknowledge that it is indeed the Lord who has spoken to them, who has been there with them. Now, one thing we need to make clear is that when we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, if we come to the conclusion that, yes, this really is the Lord himself, or this really is uh, Jesus Christ being uh, 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 foreshadowed, Jesus Christ in the Spirit, even in the Old Testament, uh, doing the work of the Lord, it's important for us to recognize that God is not an angel, nor is Jesus Christ an angel. An angel is a created being. It's someone that is not... uh, eternal. God is eternal. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is eternal. He was not created by God. He is God. He has always been with God and will always be with God. And so we need to be careful when we read these things, even though when we see the angel of the Lord here, and we may say, well, boy, that may be God himself, or that may be a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. We need to be careful not to say, well, God must be an angel, or Jesus must be an angel. That's the very thing the author of Hebrews was warning them against. Don't worship angels. Now, sometimes we see these angels of the Lord who are big and mighty and powerful and are revealing a vision or speaking to someone, as we see in Revelation with John. And when John goes to bow down before the angel, the angel says, get up, don't worship me. And so we know that there are some instances where these are really angels. Uh, There are other instances, though, where it would appear that when it says the angel of the Lord, it may very well indeed be the Lord himself. I'll let you come to that conclusion on yourself as you read through and look at those uh, different different, uh, passages that talk about the angel of the Lord. Uh, But at least we need to uh, look at that just to be aware of that phrase because we will see it some more uh, even here in the book of Judges. All right. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised you, excuse me, I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, God is reminding them of what he has done here. He said, look, I made a covenant with you. I said I was going to be with you. I was going to give you the land. Everything was going to be okay. And God said, look, I was never going to break that. I was always going to be there for you. I was always going to fight for you. I was always going to deliver you. I was always going to give you what you were supposed to do. But the covenant had a condition. And that is the people had to be obedient to God. Now, I wish we had time to go through Deuteronomy chapter 28. But I would greatly encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 28 sometime in the next few days. At the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says, look, I will bless you. I think about the first 15 verses. He says, look, I'll bless you if you're obedient to me. You'll have plenty of food. You'll have plenty of this. You'll have plenty of that. You'll be protected. Your enemies won't be able to come against you. Even though they'll come against you in one direction, they'll flee from you in seven different directions. And all of these wonderful promises that God is telling them that we have for us in Deuteronomy 28. But the rest of the chapter, which is far more than 15 verses, God says, look, but if you are not obedient to me, then woe unto you. It's going to be bad. 
And he goes and says, look, you won't be well taken care of. Your enemies will come against you. You will face such difficult times that you can't even imagine. And when you read, if you read Deuteronomy 28, you will read some of that stuff and you will say, whoa, this is serious stuff. They should have listened to the Lord. But they did not listen to the Lord. And the warning was very long. And the warning was very specific. But the people did not listen to God's warning. They could have received His blessings, and God would have never broken His covenant with them had they not have cheated on Him, so to speak, by going and worshiping other gods. He's reminding them, look, I was there with you. I delivered you. I made a covenant with you. But the people were reluctant and failed to keep that covenant. Let's read on a little further in verse 2. You are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land, and you are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Now, God had reminded them of the covenant he made with them, and he also reminded them of what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to keep up their end of the deal. God said, look, you worship me, you worship me alone. You don't worship any other gods. You don't worship any other idols. I'm giving you this land. It's full of people who do worship other gods. They do worship other idols. So when you get in there, destroy them, run them out, do away with their gods, worship me, and I'm going to take care of you. But he says in, 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 verse, in verse 2 there, uh, you are not to make a covenant with the people, which they did, who are living in this land, and you are to tear down their altars, which we will see they did not. They didn't tear down the altars of the false gods who were there in the land. But you have not obeyed me. Now they entered into a covenant together with one another. They both agreed to this covenant. But God had upheld his end of the bargain. God had been faithful to them. God had delivered them. God had fought for them. God had brought them into the land he had promised. And the Israelites had complained. They had turned their back on him. They had made a golden calf. They had put up with these false gods. They had not driven the people out. They had enslaved them. All the things that God said do not do, they did not keep up their end of the bargain. Now, when we talk about covenants, it's very important for us to realize the significance of a covenant. In particular, a covenant with the Lord or a covenant in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the most significant and sacred covenant that we probably have here in this world that we might can relate to on a personal level would be marriage. When you marry someone, you are entering into a covenant. You are saying, I'm going to be with you for better or for worse till death do us part. Uh, I promise to, to, to love you as long as we both shall live. Now, that's what it should be, but in today's culture, it may be more like, I promise to live with you as long as we both shall love. And then after that, well, we'll just go our separate ways. But that's not what a covenant is. And we, when we enter into a covenant, it is a covenant that should be forever. That is, we say we are going to put up with the good and we are going to put up with the bad. Now, God had no doubt put up with much bad from the Israelites. Even in all they had done, he had still been faithful to them. He didn't abandon them, but they had not been faithful to him. And they were about to pay the penalty for their disobedience. What is this you have done? He asked at the end of verse 2. Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochum and offered sacrifices there 
to the Lord. Now we see the name Bochum earlier in the in the passage, which was probably uh, a reflection of what happened here at the end, because the word Bochum means the weepers, and that's exactly the response of the Israelites here. God says, "Look, you have not obeyed me, and so as a result of that." I'm going to do exactly what I had already told you, which is described for us in Deuteronomy 28. I'm not going to fight for you. I'm not going to be there with you in the same way that I would have. Instead, these kings and these rulers and these pagan people that you could have overtaken, you will not be over, able to overtake. Instead, they will be a thorn in your side. They will be an aggravation to you. But even in the midst of all of this, even in the midst of all of their disobedience, God was still faithful. Because there was always going to be a few. There are always a few who are going to be faithful to the Lord. Even when the most of the bunch is bad and rotten, there were always a few in God's Word in the Old Testament. And even now today, there are always a few who are faithful to God. And even in the midst of their adultery, even in the midst of their worshiping other idols and making covenants with other gods when God told them not to, even in all that, He didn't completely wipe out the Israelites and all of their tribes. Instead, he was faithful to them. Now, this is a good, a good word of warning for us because, look, God, I believe, desires to, to protect us and be with us and take care of us and to bless us. Now, uh, that may not always look the way that we think it should look, but, but ultimately, God is going to be with us and give us the strength to make it through the best situations, not implying that we will never have anything bad or that every situation will be great, but He will help us through whatever uh, we are going through if we are obedient to Him. But if we turn from Him, what does that say about us? If we are professing Christians who profess to be His, we have indeed entered into a covenant with God in the same way the Israelites did. In the same way that they said, God, we hear Your Word, we hear what You command, we know what You say, and we know what You've done for us, therefore we submit ourselves to You to be our Lord, and we will be Your people." That's exactly what we do when we come to Jesus Christ. We say, God, we see your words, we see your commands, we see what has been done through Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you for that wonderful sacrifice. We thank you for the grace we received. And God, we submit to you. We come to you because we want to serve you and we want to follow you. And we enter into a covenant relationship with God. And we say, God, what you want is more important than what I want. And that's what we do when we become a Christian. And so we are in a covenant relationship with God. The question is, are we going to be obedient to what God has called us to do, to live like he, His people, or are we going to be drawn away uh, by those false gods, by those false idols, by those temptations of the world that may come our way? And trust me, they do come our way. And it would behoove us to really examine our lives and to look at God's people here and say, look, are we guilty of the same thing in any way? Are there things in my life that shouldn't be there that maybe I need to start doing away with some of those things? I need to start taking some of those things out. I need to start fighting those temptations so that I don't become a slave to another God, but I remain in faithful covenant with my Lord Jesus Christ who saved me. Let us look at these words of warning from the past and what happened to the Israelites and let us not be found guilty of abandoning God who wants to be faithful to us. Let us be faithful to God just as He is faithful to to us. Let's pray. God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for these words. And this is heavy stuff, dear Lord. This whole book's a heavy book. But I pray that you would help me to examine my life, dear Lord, and see those areas where 
God, I let other things come in. I pray that you would help each one to do that. Maybe there are others in here that, that have areas that need to be revealed to them. And I pray that you give us the strength and the boldness to say, look, God, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to live for you. We're going to love you more than we love the world. And I pray, God, that you would help us to do that and to learn from these words we read. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.